Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, here again with Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hey, Andy. Good to see you again. And when I say that, of course, the audience doesn't see you, but we usually record these either in person or by Zoom so that we at least uh, can see our guests and see each other. So uh, I actually am seeing Akil with his new uh, haircut. So well done. Th- thank you, Vanita. <laughs> yes. So last week we had the privilege of having a conversation with Senator Gary Hart. And one of the reasons we, we were so happy to have Senator Hart on then was because he and Akil were co-authors of a very important article in Slate in 2011, which in some ways jump-started or jump-restarted um, a, a discussion about the constitutionality uh, of the filibuster or of efforts to eliminate the filibuster. Um, so we've had some discussions about that, and so did the Senate. Um, so the Senate had a, a 13-hour debate uh, on the voting rights bills that were before it, and that debate took in large part the form of a debate on the filibuster because it was clear from the beginning that the bill was not going to pass absent uh, a nuclear option or some something akin to it to uh, eliminate the filibuster. And in this debate that the Senate held, there was some somewhat of an irony because there was a lot of bemoaning the fact that the Senate wasn't debating things, but they were actually debating um, questions of the wisdom of the filibuster and the wisdom of the voting rights bills, for that matter. So in, in a sense... Um, what the Senate hasn't been but could be was on display, uh, which one might say was an argument, uh, you know, either uh, I would say it was an argument in favor of getting rid of the filibuster. Um, but at any rate, uh, this, this debate, I think, was quite important, and we're going to bring it to you today uh, in capsule form. So I think, you know, we had some success uh, with the recent uh, episode that we had uh, called Row, 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 where we had the oral argument from the Supreme Court, and we played various clips from that uh, for you, and uh, Professor Marr reacted to them, and uh, I think that that was well-received and was effective, so we're going to do something similar to this. I'm going to play some clips from the uh, the debate, and what we're going to do is we're going to as- assess um, the arguments in favor of keeping the filibuster in favor of changing or eliminating the filibuster. And we'll see to what extent the constitutional history uh, is depicted accurately and to what degree the constitutional culture uh, is, is accurately reflected as well. How's that sound, Akil? That sounds great. So we're going to talk about this Senate debate about debate, so to speak. Um, and it's perfect timing because when we had Gary Hart on last week, we talked a lot about that. And um, and stay tuned because we're going to have Gary Hart um, back with us next week, um, and we'll ask him if he had reactions to to this conversation um, at, in the Senate, um, either on the filibuster issue um, or on the underlying voting rights issue, or both. You may our audience will remember that that Gary took the position that even if the Senate doesn't go whole hog and adopt the Amar Hart 
um, filibuster reform ideas across the board, uh, a reform, the so-called nuclear option, by which um, a majority at uh, really any uh, Senate majority, a, a bare majority, 50 senators plus the vice president or 51 senators, a bare majority can um, end debate um, generally or on any particular issue immediately um, um, after a decision by that majority has been made that um, there really has been a sufficient chance for everyone to, to be heard. Um, even if you don't buy the, the Hart-Amar approach across the board, uh, Gary suggested that there should be a way to end debate such that a majority can actually bring to a vote issues relating to the heart of democracy itself, voting. Um, he reminded us that there's already um, an, a carve-out um, from the ordinary filibuster rules so that certain issues can be brought to um, a final vote. Uh, on certain issues, debate can be brought to a close without a supermajority. So right now, those carve-outs include certain issues having to do with um, at, at taxes and spending, think, uh, in that so-called reconciliation process. Um, they, there's also a carve-out for presidential nominations, originally, um, that was for nominations other than the Supreme Court, um, the, the Harry Reid reforms in November 2013, but then under uh, Majority Leader, and he's a, it was of course, and then under Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, a Republican, that carve-out was widened, so it applies now to Supreme Court nominations as well. That was the, the Gorsuch nomination in particular, where the carve-out was widened. So there are already carve-outs for presidential nominations and uh, tax and spending bills, reconciliation. Um, Gary Hart and I, back in uh, 2011, suggested... Um, that everything should be subject at the end of the day to um, um, a simple majority vote to end debate after everyone's had a chance to make his or her case. Um, but even if you don't buy that, Gary mentioned in our last episode, Gary Hart did, that um, there should be a carve-out for issues relating to democracy itself, voting rights in particular. And as John Witt mentioned, Professor John Witt, in an earlier episode many months ago that we had on filibuster reform. Uh, the filibuster in the last century or century and a half has had an, a particularly unfortunate history um, when it comes to civil rights and voting rights um, legislation. Uh, the filibuster has been used but typically by southern senators of a, a, um, of a, of a certain sort um, to uh, uh, prevent um, voting rights legislation and civil rights legislation um, from reaching the floor for a final vote and being passed. So as you listen to these quotes, there are certain themes that I want you uh, audience members to listen for. Um, so you're going to hear uh, some senators talk about the nature of the Senate, that the Senate was designed to function a certain way. And so that's, that's something that will be argued one way or the other. So, so listen for that. And you'll hear Federalist Papers and Founding Fathers invoked um, in various ways. And I think given uh, Akil's recent book, The Words That Made Us, um, on the founders, among other things, and the Constitution, um, you know, he's in a very good position to critique whether these are accurate representations of the way that the founding fathers and the our original documents and so forth um, actually read and were intended and meant and so forth. So that's one thing 
to listen for. And related to that is the question of minority rights. There's a lot of talk about minority rights, so that's something to think about. Another uh, theme that's discussed is the question of bipartisanship, whether, um, whether the presence of the filibuster promotes or interferes with bipartisanship or whether the will of the country is better reflected with or without uh, the, the filibuster. Another question is the question of the history of the filibuster, which Akhil just uh, alluded to. You know, how long has it been there? How was it used? What, what is its traditional role? And we talk about the role of the Senate traditionally, or a, a phrase that uh, Mitch McConnell will use, the soul of the Senate. You know, uh, where does the filibuster fit into that? Okay, so these are some, and these are some of the things that I want you to listen for uh, as you listen to these um, these these clips and and our discussion of them. So we're going to start with uh, a series of clips from senators who spoke in favor of keeping the filibuster. We'll hear all their arguments, and then we'll move on um, to the the opponents. So our first speaker um, is the minority leader, Mitch McConnell, and this he actually spoke last. Um, but I think that it, uh, in some ways, he, he framed some of the debate, so I think it's, it's worth listening to him first. So here's uh, Senator Mitch McConnell. Well, here's the good news. The framers custom-built, custom-built the Senate to stop this kind of thing. That's why this institution was constructed in the first place. We're sitting in the place designed to stop this kind of thing. And we have an opportunity to do it here tonight. This is the first time in history that a Senate majority leader who is supposed to safeguard this institution has convinced, convinced nearly all of his party to attack the institution. That hadn't happened before. Tonight, for the first time in history, almost an entire political party will write in permanent ink that they would shatter the soul of the Senate for short-term power. Shatter the soul of the Senate for short-term power. We'll stop the Democratic leader from silencing the voices of millions upon millions of Americans who have a right to be heard in this chamber, many of them represented by us who come from small states. They derisively look down on us as a flower territory, a place nobody wants to stop. The Senate was designed to represent those people. Every state gets two senators. Some states have only one House member, but two senators. We're here to protect middle America. And the supermajority threshold in the Senate makes that even more possible. So they can't run roughshod over us. The President of the United States and the majority leader of the Senate 
have made breaking the Senate a central part of their plan for America. Thanks to the courageous position of at least a few of their members, they will not succeed. This country will be shielded from their radicalism tonight. And make no mistake about it, this is radicalism. Okay, so that's Senator McConnell. So Andy, this is so great that you've spent so much time, I want the audience to know how much time you uh, spent going through all the debates, picking out the best stuff, curating it for um, all of us. You did the same thing at the Row, Row, Row episode, and, and that was great, and you've done it again. Just so our audience members um, know, I'm hearing some of this for the first time. Andy, I asked Andy to, to actually go through and, and pick out the best stuff and get me to react, and, and that's how we, we did the Row, Row, Row episode as well. Um, and um, in this podcast, you're going to hear the best arguments on each side, and then you'll get the truth from me. <laughs> tell you, I'll tell you who's right and who's wrong. Um, you, know, I'm just, I, I, you know, I just call balls and strikes, Andy. Um, uh, yes, and, Mr. Chief Justice. <laughs> and speaking of the Chief Justice, you see, um, this is a podcast about all three branches of government and ultimately the American people because the Constitution is about all three branches of government and the American people. And, of course, um, I'm including state governments uh, as well. So um, federal and state um, and uh, sometimes we talk about the judiciary branch. We often do, as we did with the Roe, Roe, Roe episode. And sometimes we talk about the um, executive branch. And I could bring the Chief Justice in even that, because remember, he uniquely uh, presides over presidential impeachment trials, does the Chief Justice. Um, and sometimes we're actually going to talk about the legislative branch, as we are today, because constitutional law is made in all these branches. Um, constitutional issues are confronted by all these branches. And uh, ultimately, um, it's a document about we the people. We're going to have to decide, we, we voters. But we can't decide if we don't know the relevant issues. So this is a high-level podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Republicans and Democrats, people for filibuster reform and against. You'll hear men and women um, in what touts itself, the world's greatest deliberative assembly. Um, and Andy, since you mentioned the Chief Justice, as you know, Sometimes I'm on the Chief Justice's side. Um, sometimes I'm on his side when he has voted basically with um, uh, uh, Democrats, as he did very famously in the Obamacare case, the Sebelius case. Um, sometimes I'm um, on his side um, even when the, the Democrats um, are uh, appointees or are against him. Um, as we didn't talk about um, this, but um, in the, uh, the, the so-called um, travel ban case. I actually thought the Chief Justice had the, the, the better legal argument. Um, I was with the Republicans on uh, Citizens United, and we'll talk about that at some point at some future episode. We did talk about it with Floyd Abrams um, um, earlier. Um, and just to remind you all, the person in the Senate um, whose position was closest to mine, um, in a way, on, on Citizens United was none other than Mitch McConnell. Um, and I think he was right to think that um, the McCain-Feingold campaign finance law, which called itself reform, was in fact incumbent self-entrenchment and unconstitutional. So I'm not afraid to 
um, stand with Senator McConnell on some issues. Um, in a future episode, we're going to have um, one of um, a judge that's been particularly close to Senator McConnell join us, I, I hope, but he's agreed in principle, Amul Thapar, um, might very well be the next justice on the Supreme Court, at least uh, on, uh, on uh, Republican-nominated justice. There, there are others um, also, of course, on that short list. So I'm not afraid to agree with Senator McConnell when I think he's right. Um, as I thought he was basically right when it came to uh, caps on so-called independent expenditures in Citizens United. But most of what I heard him say in that clip, and I'm hearing for the first time, just as some of our, most of our audience members are hearing for the first time, is hooey, um, applesauce, balderdash. Um, I won't say bullshit seven times, <laughs> but he doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, and he's supposed to be a senator. So... Um, First of all, for the first time, for the first time, for the first time, my gosh, Senator McConnell, you as majority leader pushed, actually, overwhelmingly, and it was basically, uh, you know, members of one party, um, the so-called nuclear option when it came to um, Justice Gorsuch, and I was with you on that. But don't tell me this for the first time. Reid did it on one side, Senator um, Harry Reid. You did it on the other side. So that was baloney. And then... The issue is not, Senator McConnell, whether Kentucky gets two senators or Wyoming or California. No one is challenging that. That is the soul of the Senate, and that's not at issue. The, the issue is, um, do you need a supermajority of senators to end debate or a mere majority, but each senator gets one vote, and California has only two senators, and Wyoming has two senators. So, so that's just a red herring. You're just, you know, that's apples and oranges to bring that in, because that's not the issue. That is what the framers, you know, were focused on. Um, in fact, but, if, if, if it were going to be an issue at all, it would be an issue in the House, you know, where people might not pay much attention to Wyoming because there's only one member from Wyoming or something like that. But and the House operates by simple majority rule, as does the Electoral College, as does the Supreme Court, five beats four, as does every state legislature. So this is, now, you want to talk about the original Senate? Damn it, let's talk about the original Senate because here's what the presiding officer of the Senate of the United States in 1801 writes, and, and he knows a thing or two about um, democracy and the Constitution, the Founding Fathers, because his name is Thomas Jefferson. This is his manual of, of parliamentary practice for use of the Senate of the United States. It's one of the, the landmark Senate documents of all time. Senator McConnell, have you read this document? Because what you're saying is baloney. Here's a direct quote from Thomas Jefferson. Quote, no one is to speak impertinently or beside the point, superfluously or tediously. That is, no one's supposed to filibuster by reading the phone book or anything like that. Back to Jefferson. The voice of the majority decides. Like, is there any ambiguity about that whatsoever? For the lex majoris partis, which is this Latin for majority rule, is the law of all councils, elections, etc., were not otherwise expressly provided. That was the rule of the Senate at the founding. Okay? Um, and you can think that we, we did a good thing in moving away from that later in American history. There are going to be other quotes, and we're going to talk about other people making appeals to history. But when you try to wrap yourself in the founders, with all due respect, and, you, and I've been on your side on lots of issues, Senator McConnell, you don't know what you're talking about 
and I do know what I'm talking about. That's why I've written six books on the Constitution and immersed myself in constitutional history. And my brother, in fact, is also an expert on the Senate. His student note was called The Senate and the Constitution. It's in Yale Law Journal. And so, and my God, you're supposed to know something about the Senate, your institution. And in fact, you don't. This is why I'm an originalist. I think we all need to know, actually, the original history. And Senator McConnell doesn't. Um, And what we're getting here is a version of, you know, trutherism, birtherism, lost cause stuff, stop the steal. They're just saying stuff that isn't true, and they've convinced themselves of it. But facts, said John Adams, who is also um, a presiding officer of the Senate, facts, said John Adams, are stubborn things. And I've just given you facts. He gave you a lot of rhetoric. He gave you no quote whatsoever from any founding father or from early Senate practice. I repeat, I'm going to say this several times today. If the filibuster was actually there from the beginning, please show me one um, situation prior to the Civil War where an important issue was basically talked to death and the the Senate wasn't able to vote. It is true that there was lots of debate, maybe even arguably unlimited debate, but there was unlimited debate when it was a small body and everyone got to talk and maybe even talk a second time or a third time, you know, with the consent of the body. And then they came to a vote. Everyone got to talk and then everyone got to vote. That actually is early Senate practice. One final point. The early... um, um, it matters most of all when we have a two-party system. We didn't have really a permanent two-party system until basically the age of, of Andrew Jackson, um, uh, uh, when um, then it was sort of um, Whigs and Democrats, which would morph into Republicans and Democrats. And in that era, um, uh, there weren't entrenched filibusters. And again, I said this before, um, here's the proof. The Compromise of 1850 was a very, very big deal, and it was a big deal because the free states would now have two senators more than the slave states, and that was a big deal because simple majorities ruled in the antebellum Senate, full stop. Now, you said that uh, Senator McConnell didn't provide any quotes from the founders, and that's true. It was He was making an argument or really asserting something without providing... Um, Evidence, um, but here's um, uh, the minority whip, uh, Senator Thun from uh, South Dakota, and he's going to quote a founder. Whether 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 or not the quote is convincing is another matter, but here here he is um, trying to uh, support that argument. I want to read for you from the Federalist Papers because there's been a lot of quoting of the founding fathers over here today. This is what the author of Federalist 62 notes, and I quote, A Senate, as a second branch of the legislative assembly, distinct from and dividing power with a first, must be in all cases a salutary check on the government. It doubles the security to the people by requiring the concurrence of two distinct bodies in schemes of usurpation and perfidy. Secondly, The necessity of a Senate is not less indicated by the propensity of all single and numerous assemblies to yield to the impulse of sudden and violent passions and to be seduced by factious leaders into intemperate and pernicious resolutions. Go on, the author of Federalist 62. A continual change, even of good measures, is inconsistent with every rule of prudence 
and every prospect of success. In the first place, it forfeits the respect and confidence of other nations and all the advantages connected with national character. The internal effects of immutable policy are still more calamitous. It poisons the blessing of liberty itself. It will be of little avail to the people that the laws are made by men of their own choice if the laws be so voluminous that they cannot be read or so incoherent that they cannot be understood if they be repealed or revised before they are promulgated or undergo such incessant changes that no man who knows what the law is today can guess what it will be tomorrow. Law is defined to be a rule of action, but how can that be a rule which is little known and less fixed? Ladies and gentlemen, our founders created this institution to be separate and distinct from the House of Representatives for a reason. And what you're talking about doing today is turning the United States Senate into a majoritarian body. No different. No different from the House of Representatives, except with longer terms, and some people would argue bigger egos. That's what we're talking about doing. They won't need us. Yeah, we have longer terms. They're staggered. But the essence of the Senate is a check and balance on the passions of the other body. Okay, so that's uh, Senator Thune, and he, he's uh, not quite, you know, addressing the filibuster directly. The implication, of, co- of course, he, of course, he's not, because he has no freaking evidence about that, and he doesn't know what he's talking about. So let's go through it, because like either he's an expert, you know, and is right. Or, oh, because I'm an expert and I'm saying he's about as wrong as it's possible to be and this is what I do for a living, okay? So, I don't, because I don't have hours and hours to persuade you. And he hates it when I appeal to authority that way, but I don't have hours and hours to persuade you, members of the audience, but I can tell you I spent actually my lifetime reading up on this stuff. So, he says, well, apart from... Um, the, six, the longer term and the bigger ego or something. Like, well, those are important differences. And then he says it's staggered. It's more than that. But that's like, well, apart from the shooting, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you enjoy the play? Because, yes, they structured the Senate as a distinct body, and here are the ways in which it was distinct. It's six years versus two years. That's a big difference. It's staggered. It doesn't turn over all the, at once, so it's, it's less prone to a gust of faction. If uh, the, people on election day one time kind of go crazy, oh, that's bad for the House, um, but not so bad for the Senate because two-thirds of them weren't even up for that, a re-election in that, um, uh, on that one day that America went crazy. It's a smaller body. All this has been. Um, first House was designed to be 65 First Senate was designed to be 26. Now, not everyone ratified immediately, but um, uh, 26, um, uh, 13 states, two cents. So it's always been smaller, longer term, um, staggered um, replenishment, and um, at the founding, of course, picked indirectly, picked by state legislatures rather than directly by voters. Those are the differences that Madison is talking about in the Federalist 62. Again and again, though he's not saying anything at all. Damn it, Senator Thune. Not one damn thing about majority rule in the House versus supermajority rule in the Senate, because there was no supermajority rule in the Senate, Senator Thune. If you actually knew some history, there was not. 
And I just read earlier Thomas Jefferson saying that, and he'd know a thing or two about it because he's the presiding officer of the Senate in the founding period. And here, you mentioned Federalist 62. Oh, my God, if only I knew something about the author of Federalist 62. Oh, wait, I do. His name is James Madison, and I've written a ton about him. And here's what James Madison says in the Federalist number 10. He refers to majority rule as, quote, the Republican principle, unquote. So they did not repeat, not have supermajority. Madison isn't talking about that. You've quoted Federalist 62, interestingly, but it has nothing to do with 60 votes or 67 votes or endless debate or anything like that. Um, And to repeat, the early Senate people got to talk because it's a smaller body, and I'm in favor of that. Always have been. But then they get to vote. Um, so, um, oh, and finally, of course, there's the difference in the apportionment ratio um, that we already heard um, Senator McConnell invoke about Wyoming and California today. Back then, it would have been Delaware and Virginia. So let's just rehearse the differences, which is what Federal 62 is talking about. Different rule of apportionment. Different term of office. Um, different rule of apportionment equal uh, state voting versus proportional voting. Um, six-year terms versus two-year terms. It doesn't turn over all at once, so it'll be actually a buffer and, and, and much more um, uh, deliberative. At the founding, picked, uh, small, always been smaller. Um, in theory, that d- isn't necessarily the case. It's actually possible to imagine a smaller House of Representatives. Believe it or not, um, you could have a law that said each state actually has to have um, has, has one representative. Um, you, ha- you, you can't take away any. So it's possible to imagine the House being 13 um, and the Senate being 26, but, but it, theoretically, but, but that was cra- crazy. So a smaller body... Um, and, of course, at the founding, picked by state legislatures. Those are the differences that Federalist 62 itemizes. Check, 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 because Madison's very methodical. Not once does he advert to a difference that the Senate's going to work majority or unanimity or something and the House otherwise. And, in fact, the Federalist Papers again and again say a fundamental problem with the Articles of Confederation are that it requires a supermajority to get certain things done, and we won't have that in the Constitution. Um, so um, I, I don't have the Federalist Papers right here in my hand, but that's actually Hamilton um, in the Federalist Papers. I, I assure you of that. So he, yeah, I think he, it's pretty clear that it's not a great argument for the filibuster to quote Federalist 62. Um, he does talk about the the notion of you know, controlling the passions of the moment. You talked about the staggered election. It's interesting because the one change in the Senate over time that you alluded to is that the Senate is no longer uh, elected by state legislatures. Mm -hmm. If Mm -hmm. anything, that's a change, you know, away from uh, slowing things down, you know, or or having the Senate be more of an aristocratic body. Yes. so that it, it doesn't make for much of an argument for the filibuster, you know, that you, while well, we need to have the Senate, the Senate is the, is the, is the house of obstruction, and, uh, and, and the founders intended that. And, 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 well, over time it became necessary to institute the filibuster because uh, these were insufficient uh, safeguards or something like that. Right. But if that were the case, then why would you go from state legislatures to popular vote? So sure, sure. that's, that's um, a move in the other direction. T- Correct. Um, all uh, outstanding points. But obstruction even is different than preventing a vote from ever occurring. If the bill is bad, vote against it. 
I'm not objecting to that. Right. So now we've got um, Senator Cotton, who made uh, some. He 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 had an interesting uh, time at uh, with on the floor. He basically challenged Democratic senators to enter into a colloquy with him regarding a. Uh, a, a document that they had signed, said 26 senator, Democratic senators had signed saying that we're in favor of not restricting, uh, you know, unlimited debate. But, um, but at any rate, he's not going to get into that at this point here. This was his kind of introduction to that era, that, uh, that discussion. The rules and customs under debate today go back to the second decade, the second decade of the United States Senate. And perhaps more importantly, every time those rules have been modified, up to and including the most recent changes on the legislative calendar, they've been modified in accordance with the rules, not using the nuclear option, breaking the rules so we can change the rules. And that's a point that was made um, repeatedly by the Republicans, that this is somehow breaking the rules to change the rules. So two or three things. First of all, he mentions the second decade. What about the first decade? Um, Second, um, I repeat, the, um, um, the, the quote that I gave you from Thomas Jefferson was from 1801. That's the second decade. And he says, and it's just impossible for the English language to be clearer on this point. Um, and, and you see, Thune doesn't have a quote, and, and Cotton doesn't have a quote. And, and he's a Harvard Law School graduate in any event, so I have my doubts. But, you know, <laughs> but there, there are some good ones, uh, Matthew Lipka um, preeminently. Um, but... To repeat, this is Thomas Jefferson in the 1801 manual practice for the use of the Senate of the United States. This is the landmark document of the Senate early on. The voice of the majority decides. And, and Senator Cotton, if you can point me a single instance before the Civil War where something was filibustered to death and, um, and wasn't allowed to come to a vote, please do so. Otherwise, please stop saying this. And also, please stop saying that we've never done nuclear option before because we did it under Harry Reid and we did it under Mitch McConnell. We've already done that. Um, and we did it, and he says, well, you can't break the rules, um, change the rules by breaking the rules. That's actually what was done. Rule 22, which is this sort of filibuster rule, was modified without following Rule 22. That's some catch that Catch 22, because Catch 22 says you can't basically fix the rule by majority rule itself. And Akhil Amar and Gary Hart cut that Gordian knot with one simple move, saying, to the extent Rule 22 says that, and that actually prevents a determined, albeit simple, majority from actually um, um, uh, being in control of the chamber and doing what they um, seek to do in a deliberative fashion. To the extent Rule 22 tries to say a simple majority can't change Rule 22 itself uh, or reinterpret it, Rule 22 would be unconstitutional. That's the Gordian knot move. Once you understand that the Constitution itself has a majority rule principle built into it, um, that um, uh, when it says laws, um, that, that certain things need supermajorities, it says so. It says you need a supermajority to convict in an impeachment situation, that you need a supermajority to propose a constitutional amendment, that you need a supermajority to oust a misbehaving senator. Um, so... Um, 
there, um, I mean, you need a supermajority to um, ratify a treaty. Many of those supermajorities are where you don't have um, a full bicameralism presentment. Um, uh, so in an amendment, you don't have the president. You just have two-thirds of the House, two-thirds of the Senate. In a treaty, you don't have the House of Representatives. In a, judici- in a um, um, uh, expulsion of a senator, you don't have um, the, um, the House of Representatives, or the president for that matter. Um, in an impeachment, you don't have the concurrence of the president. So supermajorities are sometimes required to offset the, the lack of these two other institutions, the absence of them, the House and the president. So their model is, yes, in general, you want the House, the Senate, and the, and the president, and, but, you, but when they're doing something and they're all in agreement, it's simple majority rule not two-thirds. That's Article 1, Section 7, saying bills pass and all you need a simple majority. And Article 1, Section 5 says each house can make rules of its, for, uh, of, for its own um, proceedings. And once again, it can do so by simple majority vote. And to the extent you, uh, the rule tries to prevent the rule from itself being modified by simple majority vote, um, and that's an entrenched thing that actually uh, in which the dead hand of the past was actually preventing a, a current um, uh, 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 majority of the body in the present, it is and would be unconstitutional. That's the Gary Hart, Akhil Amar argument that uh, we put forth in 2011. Uh, the audience members can, can read it. We have it up on the website. Um, and it prevailed under Harry Reid for most presidential nominations and it further prevailed under Mitch McConnell for Supreme Court nominations. So what you said, Senator Cotton, isn't true, really, in any relevant respect. You know, I know you went to Harvard and not Yale Law School, but if you had been my class, I would have given you a low grade. And not because, you know, you're a Republican and I'm a Democrat, because, because you got your facts wrong. Speaking of Democrats, um, we have Joe Manchin, now, obviously, this was important, what he had to say, um, but it's also interesting how he said it. So he, when he delivered his, uh, his comments, he had a big poster next to him that says, the United States Senate has, and then a huge letter is the word never, and then it says, been able, to, so the United States Senate has never been able to end debate with a simple majority. And a simple majority is also in large letters. So, so that's not true of the Reed reform. It's not true of the um, McConnell reform. It's not true of reconciliation. It's not true at the founding, actually, because they did uh, end debate. Um, he um, may think that they got rid of, under Aaron Burr, which is you know the second decade, uh, the motion to move the previous question, but that wasn't um, um, ever that, that, that the early um, Senate presumably um, had that motion as a matter of general parliamentary practice, and, and Parliament doesn't have majority supermajority rule, um, by the way. But even though um, you couldn't necessarily end debate by moving the previous question, there were other ways of ending debate. Um, like through points of privilege. And to repeat, um, I don't know, actually, of any successful effort in the entire antebellum period in which a majority wasn't, at the end of the day, able to vote. It was a much smaller body, and the two-party system wasn't entrenched. So a much more accurate rendering of history is, here's what the early Senate was all about, all the way to the Civil War. Everyone got to speak, and I'm in favor of that, Senator Manchin, and, and I actually respect you a lot, and I, 
I'm so sad that people on the hard left have, have gone after you. I, I, I've defended you at every turn, um, and Andy knows this, against um, your critics on the hard left, from Bernie Sanders to AOC um, and, and that crowd. But everyone got to speak, and then everyone got to vote. Also, um, the, the current version of the filibuster actually is antithetical to debate. As Gary Hart mentioned last week, people actually just file an intention to object to a bill, but they actually don't give their reasons. And, and, if they, and I don't like it when they're filibustering just by reading poetry or Dr. Seuss um, you know, or great literature as opposed to actually arguing the point. And, and Jefferson said, no one is to argue tediously or you know, impertinently or beside the point. And that's in the manual of parliamentary procedure, you see. So, so ironically, we, do, um, we don't have the, um, today the very thing that you and I, Senator Manchin, both believe in, which is senators actually talking to each other and making arguments, letting people who are on the other side make their arguments, even, I would say, um, uh, introduce amendments. Um, I don't like a thing called filling the amendment tree and all the rest. So, um, but everyone should speak, and then everyone should vote. One final point, it's not a coincidence that Joe Manchin comes from West Virginia. He learned all this stuff, I'm suspecting, from Robert Byrd from West Virginia, who made up a lot of this history, and, and we talked about this last week with Gary Hart, um, and this is all lost cause stuff. Rewrite, oh, you know, the Civil War wasn't about slavery, and was ill-treated, um, um, and, 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 and that's all these, and, and Robert E. Lee was a, you know, and, and Stonewall Jackson, you know, were, were great people and nice to black people and all the rest. So there's all this stuff that's not really quite true, and in modern um, incarnations, we've got birtherism and trutherism and stop the steal. So um, um, what Robert Byrd, a very distinguished senator from um, West Virginia, Democrat, um, who is, an, uh, uh, I'm sure, was a mentor of sorts to a young, um, and a role model of sorts to a young Joe Manchin, as aspiring to, to that kind of um, a career path himself. He's get, I know where he's getting this stuff. It's the same source that Gary Hart is getting, um, but it's not true. Well, I think you're going to hear uh, Democrats on, you know, quote Bird uh, themselves, and actually, as will Senator Manchin, but here's Here's uh, what he had to say. Uh, it's about uh, three and a half minutes of what he had to say. Right now, we're debating a fundamental change in the Senate rules that will forever alter the way this body functions. For the last year, my Democratic colleagues have taken to the Senate floor cable news airwaves, pages of newspapers across the country, uh, and to argue that repealing the filibuster is actually restoring the Senate to the vision of the founding fathers intended for this deliberate body. My friends, that is simply not true. It's just not true. The United States Senate has never in 233 years been able to end debate on legislation with a simple majority vote. With a simple majority vote, have never been able to end, end debate. Could not stop a debate. Note that he says on legislation because he is more careful, at least than that Cotton quote was, because he's aware he's got to deal with the Reed and the McConnell precedents on nominations. 
And then the question is, why are nominations different from legislation? And constitutionally, they aren't. Okay, so that's one thing. And he's fought, it's wrong on the facts. They were able to end, end, end debate, as I've, as I've suggested, uh, albeit not necessarily with a device called uh, moving the previous question. Um, one problem is we don't have complete records of the first six years of the Senate because it met behind closed doors. But we do know that it operated under general parliamentary uh, practices, and general parliamentary practices do al- did allow an, an, an ending of of debate, and, and that's true of the United States, of, of the British Parliament and the House of Lords, and it's it's true of, of state legislatures at the time of the founding. Um, so I don't think it's it's true, but he's at least a little more careful because he says on legislation. Robert Byrd used to say two things a senator can do: a senator has a right to amend and a right to speak. He always said that. In fact, prior to 1917, there was no mechanism for any debate in the Senate whatsoever. Couldn't end it. So that's not true. They inadvertently um, omitted uh, in some reforms under Aaron Burr the previous question, but before that there was. Um, and, and it's also not true because um, a debate was ended under other mechanisms apart from moving the previous uh, question. To repeat for the umpteenth time, um, he cannot point to, no one has pointed to, any important um, uh, antebellum situation where basically people weren't allowed to vote. But here's what, I, I, I agree with lots of what Senator Manchin um, um, has said here and has done elsewhere. First of all, I like his tone. He's very respectful and civil. He's a real senator. Second of all, I really respect the two things that he said, senators have to be able to speak and make amendments. Amen. I agree with that. But that doesn't get you a right to stop everyone else from um, voting when you've had your say. Um, um, So the filibuster as currently practiced actually, to repeat, isn't about speaking, unfortunately, um, or amending. It's become something very different, and he doesn't know this with all due respect, because he's not an historian um, of the Senate. Um, I claim to be. Um, he's not a scholar. He doesn't know really what it was like in the early era. Only in the modern era, on the last 30 years, have you basically needed a supermajority for almost anything important, apart from um, this thing called reconciliation. Um, so um, I don't think he's saying knowingly untrue things, because I actually have great respect for him and hate how he's being treated. We're so lucky that he is still willing to be a Democrat because he takes hits for that in, in West Virginia. And if he weren't a Democrat, Mitch McConnell would wield the gavel, no Democrat would have the chair in any committee, and Bernie Sanders doesn't seem to get that. So, so I, I, I've been defending Joe Manchin in all sorts of ways, um, but just on the facts, he's wrong. Oh, Senator Manchin, call me maybe. You know, I, I can actually set you straight on this because um, I do claim to be a, a scholar of early Senate practice. Okay, well, let's return to what he's saying here. In that year, the Senate adopted a cloture rule. It required that the debate to end when two-thirds of the voting senators willed it. Since then, the cloture rule has been amended seven times, always by regular order. I hear all these things we're talking about, but we forget. A lot of the things are done with regular order. Just recently... Senator Schumer, Senator McConnell, basically this, the uh, debt ceiling. They did that using the rules. You didn't break the rules to do that. 
You did it. You worked it out, which is the leadership's responsibility. So again, there's this reference to the rules, but the rules exist only if they're constitutional, you see. And I'm saying to the extent that they prevent a majority from modifying them a determined majority, they're unconstitutional. That's point one. Point two is um, that the nuclear option done by Reed in 20, November 2013 and by McConnell um, for Gorsuch wasn't quite done by a modif- by a, a rewriting of the rules or, uh, or even done quite under regular order. It was simply done using a parliamentary technique um, um, that's nicknamed the, the nuclear option that was done by simple majority rule. It was simply saying, okay, we don't change the rule, we just reinterpret it. Um, and, we're, and, and in that reinterpretation, we act by simple majority rule. And that was done. We've are, we already in a nuclear world. Everyone, including you, recognize that if you and Senator Sinema had actually voted to end debate, you know, um, then debate would be ended. So everyone recognizes that 51 votes suffices to change um, rule 22. Whether we call it a formal rule change or a reinterpretation of the rule doesn't matter so much to me. But everyone understands today, including you, Senator Manchin, that um, a simple majority can do this because the Senate already has done this in recent memory twice. So, so you're... Your appeals to you know the the rules themselves, the catch twenty two nature of rule twenty two, isn't really that was a a, a pretty good argument um, uh, when Gary Hart and I were writing in twenty eleven. It's just not a good argument anymore because we've already done it twice, um, once by the Democrats, once by the Republicans, by Reed, and then by McConnell. So someone listening to this podcast might have heard you say earlier that well. You know, this rule actually is an unconstitutional rule to the extent that it prevents the uh, that that it be, that's a rule of decision, um, and so therefore someone might say, well, if it's an unconstitutional rule, then perhaps uh, someone has a cause of action, you know, on the, and they could, you know, uh, because they're acting unconstitutionally. But in fact, I think in our private discussions, you've said that if to the degree that anyone would challenge it, it would. The, the Senate themselves would be the constitutional court acting in judgment on themselves, so it's unlikely that uh, that they would find themselves to be acting unconstitutionally. Right. They they are the, 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 the adjudicators of this issue, and in that capacity, they act by majority rule in the same way that the United States Supreme Court does, five beats four every time, and nothing in the Constitution says that explicitly. It's just by, as it were, the background law of all assemblies, the law of nature, the very things that Benjamin Franklin, John Locke, and Thomas Jefferson explicitly quoted and that I quoted um, uh, um, in our last episode. Okay, back to Joe Manchin. It means that the Senate has followed its own rule book when making changes that affect legislative debate. We've changed rules over, we've all talked about how many times rules have been changed. We've changed them. But we changed them with the rules. We didn't break the rules to change the rules. But all of a sudden now, we just can't do it anymore. Just got to blow it up. The rule book means that the rules changes are done on the basis of broad bipartisan consensus, not imposed on the minority by raw majority power, no matter who's in power. The majority does not have that power to do that in this Senate. 
Well, they do have that power, and they have exercised it. And you talked about blowing things up. That's why they call it the nuclear option. But we already did that um, in, to repeat, for the 15th time, you know, 2013 under Reed and then McConnell. So you're just too late with that argument. It's no longer availing. It's contrary to actual Senate precedent and practice. Well, I also think that to the degree that he's talking about you know, sort of a tyranny of the majority is what he's making reference to, that the minority get trampled by the majority. To the degree that the Senate is obstructed, the minority is trampling the majority. Why is that better? Yes, you know, and- so, if you, um, so you ha- if you think that the voting rights bill is itself on the merits tyrannical, say so, but you don't, Senator Manchin. You think it's actually a good bill. You're willing to vote for it once on, you know, um, on the merits, but not twice <laughs> on the filibuster reform and then the merits, which is a little bit of an odd um, uh, 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 a position, but yeah, if you like minority rights, oh, you should love minority rule because um, uh, I mean, you should love majority rule because a majority is just a bunch of minorities put together. Um, so, so I, I'm worried about tyranny of the majority, but I'm worried about tyranny of the minority even more. You know, <laughs> that's called Joe Stalin. You know, or or Mao. Uh, um, so, um, but then, I, but but the problem isn't. Um, Sometimes this phrase is just used as a substitute for analysis, just like, you know, when, when um, Justice Sotomayor said stench, because you have to show me what's tyrannical about it. You can't simply assume that majorities are inherently and always tyrannical. That would be an, an absurd thing. Then, then, then the person who actually gets the fewer votes should win the election, and the person who gets you know, the least votes of all should be the ultimate winner. And in the Supreme Court, the four should beat the five, and three should beat four, and two should beat one. It's, it's craziness. It's, um, I'm going to you know, um, mangle the Yiddish, but it's, it's Meshuggah. It's Meshuggah. <laughs> Let this change happen in this way, and the Senate will be a body without rules. There will not be no rules. The Senate's greatest rule is the one that is unwritten. This is an unwritten rule, and it's the greatest one we have. It's the rule of self-restraint, which we have very little of anymore. Self-restraint. The rule will be broken along with the cloture rule if the nuclear option is executed. And for that, I cannot be a party to that. So the ultimate um, unwritten rule, after I wrote a whole book called America's Unwritten Constitution, is majority rule. It's the backdrop rule um, of, to repeat, the Supreme Court, Parliament, State legislatures, the United States House, it's, it's just the default rule unless specified other word, otherwise. Rule 22 can you know, purport to specify otherwise, um, but to the extent Rule 22 prevents its own modification by a simple majority, it's violating the Constitution itself, which in Article 1, Section 5, about Senate rulemaking, um, and in Article 1, Section 7, about legislation, presupposes simple majority rule as the basic rule of the Constitution itself, every bit as much for the House, uh, for the Senate as for the House, and every bit as much um, as in the Supreme Court to repeat, which does not say that um, five beats four. On, but, but, of course, everyone understands that at the Supreme Court. I think he's a very good and decent person, um, and I've, I don't, I've never met him, but, but I'd love to sit down with him because, actually, he's, he really is, I think, sincere and trying to do the right thing. I think, um, though, he's, he's just mistaken on um, history and constitutional law. Uh, but he would say, Senator Burr began by quoting James Madison. 
He said, Madison said that the purpose of the Senate was first to protect the people against the rulers. Secondly, to protect the people against the transient impressions into which they themselves may be led. And that the Senate serves as a necessary fence against such dangers. Senator Byrd testified that the right to filibuster anchors this necessary fence. He concluded with, we must never, ever, ever, ever tear down the only wall, the necessary fence that this nation has against the excesses of the executive branch and the resultant haste and tyranny of the majority. Eliminating the filibuster would be the easy way out. It wasn't meant to be easy. So, um, I, uh, so once again, we hear this tyranny of the majority trope, um, which is just an excuse for analysis, because um, majorities aren't necessarily and inherently always tyrannical, um, and minorities can be tyrannical, so you just have to give me more than that, that, that meme or soundbite. We hear the invocation of um, Robert Byrd once again. Um, now, the Madison quote, the Madison quote isn't about supermajority. It's about transient majorities. And the solution was long terms, six years, and a buffered, staggered re-election system so that the Senate would never actually succumb to um, a, a just flights of fancy, um, gusts of faction, uh, as um, uh, uh, reflected in uh, a single um, day, election day, in which kind of the people temporarily go crazy. Madison doesn't say the solution to this is supermajority rule in the Senate because the Senate didn't operate by supermajority. Uh, Madison was trying to solve a different problem, the problem of a transient majority, um, you know, a gust of faction, and the solution is to repeat long terms. Um, and another part of the solution is staggered replenishment. So, and that, and that's my idea for 18-year terms: staggered replenishment, long terms. You see, not directly elected, but indirectly. So that's another sort of filtering device compared to the House of Representatives. But of course, the 17th Amendment is going to change um, all of that. A smaller body where people are going to actually uh, listen to each other more carefully and 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 think more and a different apportionment rule so it's a different one from the house of representatives so kind of um in the same way that you're sort of sampling um uh, uh popular opinion in sort of different ways those are the solutions none of those are about senate supermajority and to repeat james madison referred to majority rule as quote the republican principle in the federalist 10 and um, he and especially Hamilton were highly critical of the Articles of Confederation because it required nine states to, to, to move most, out of 13, to move, move most important things. And uh, Hamilton, in fact, says this is a real problem. Um, the simple majority rule is necessary to get important things done, and, and that's the, pro- and they, so they, intentionally modified the supermajority rule of the Articles of Confederation, which is the body that looks the most like the Senate. Um, it was um, states, they were, uh, uh, members of the Confederation Congress were picked by state legislatures, and they voted um, as um, equal state blocks. Um, that's the thing that looks most like the Senate. Now, the difference is there were about four, five or six of them. They weren't paid by the federal government. They served uh, one-year terms rather than six-year terms. Um, they weren't infinitely re-eligible. They were subject to um, uh, state legislative uh, recall um, at will. 
voted as a block rather than per capita, you know, state qua state. It was more like the UN, okay? So um, there are differences between the, the Senate and um, the Confederation Congress, um, but the Senate is the thing that looks most like the Confederation Congress, and the Constitution repudiated emphatically the supermajority rule of the Confederation Congress, and Hamilton has a Federalist paper talking just about that. And also, it's not like this, you know, the, you know, the Federal 62 is not the only Federalist paper. Right. And, and it's right. not like the Senate is the only body. You also have presentment. Yeah. You, know, all you, these have, things, you have to but, present but, it to right, the president. Right. You know, and so. Federal 62 doesn't remotely say what they wanted to say. And Madison doesn't remotely say this because he doesn't believe that. And mm-hmm. who's Madison you know, joined at the hip with. His name is Thomas freaking Jefferson, and I keep reading you what Thomas Jefferson actually says about this as the, as the presiding officer of the Senate, a.k.a. the vice president. Okay, but so they I don't hear- know any of this stuff. None of them do, because, unfortunately, they're spending most of their time dialing for dollars and, and tweeting and kissing babies and stuff, and they're not actually even expert on their own branches. He's getting this stuff from Robert Byrd. Oh, and, and he, said, he said something about never, never, never right. in that quote. Yes. You know, okay, you know what that, you know, calls to mind for me. Um, a young Senator Byrd's um, partner in political crime, so to speak, George Wallace, or Orville Faubus, these people planting themselves in the schoolhouse door and saying segregation now, you know, segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. This is the never, never, never stuff. There's a history behind that trope, just as there is behind this um, uh, tyranny of the majority trope. Although, in all fairness, I don't think that uh, Senator Manchin had that in mind. when He didn't, but he's getting it from a bad source, mm-hmm. Robert Byrd, and I'm not going to let Byrd off the hook. He changed his mind. He, he reformed himself. Good, good, good. But this filibuster stuff is the residue of Southern segregationism. That's, um, it's not uniquely and only that, but it's um, to a very considerable extent that. And John Witt said just that on an earlier version of a podcast. We're going to hear some of the Democrats say that also. Um, as, uh, and, and, gonna... and, 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 and these, the people who are doing this, we're members of the Democratic Party, you know, mm-hmm. my party. We, we are more complicit in this than the Republicans. Okay, so now we're going to hear from some of the Democrats in response. Um, so I started with uh, the minority leader, uh, so we might as well start with the majority leader. So here's what uh, Senator Schumer had to say. And he followed um, Senator McConnell at the end. When this rule was not always in existence and was not envisioned by the founders. That is the key question we should each ask ourselves. To be clear, minority rights are a vital feature of this chamber. But the Senate was never envisioned to allow an absolute minority party veto. Never. In fact, the founders expressly rejected the inclusion of a supermajority requirement for the Senate. Hamilton called the idea poison. If there's anything undermining the spirit of the Senate today, it's frankly the way things work right now. It's time for the Senate to adapt, 
to meet the challenge of the modern age. Robert Byrd himself recognized this truth that Senate rules must sometimes change. And our proposal today is a limited, carefully tailored step we can take to make the rules of the Senate achieve this body's original purpose. So um, I, we hear Senator Schumer mention Hamilton. Um, you heard others mention Madison. To repeat, Madison was not a believer in Senate supermajority. He says nothing of the sort in Federalist 62, and he refers to majority rule as the Republican principle. That's a quote in Federalist number 10, which is his first Federalist essay. Um, I'd earlier mentioned Hamilton um, I, uh, and, and his support for um, majority rule. Um, Schumer mentioned Hamilton at Philadelphia talking about um, how supermajority rules can be poisonous. This is the theme of Hamilton in the Federalist number 22. Um, he says, quote, to give a minority a negative, that is a veto upon the majority, which is always the case when more than a majority is requisite to a decision, as opposed to just deliberation, is in its tendency to subject the sense of the greater number to that of the lesser number. And he goes on to say that's exactly in violation of the Republican principle which requires that the sense of the majority should prevail. And he's emphatically, this is all in the Federalist number 22. Um, uh, and then he actually uh, critiques gridlock. It is often by the impracticability of obtaining the concurrence of a necessary number of votes that the situation is kept in a state of inaction. Um, and that must always savor of weakness, sometimes border upon anarchy. So he's actually saying when you have really um, un unduly onerous supermajority requirements, you can't solve problems, you, you're stuck in gridlock. All of that is expressed in the Federalist 22, and it is on the actual principle of what the decision rule should be, the voting rule. Whereas all those other quotes had nothing to do with the decision rule, but had to do instead with six years versus two years and a smaller body and uh, a direct election versus indirect election, staggered terms, um, proportional versus non-proportional representation. That's what they were about. Nothing about the decision rule. This is expressly about majority rule and it's expressly in favor of it. So, so um, good for you, Schumer. You at least know that. Now, truth be told, Chuck Schumer was not singing this tune, you know, for all of his career. And, that's, and, and, and the Democrats can be accused of, of changing their tune on this. And we'll maybe talk about that a little bit more when we hear some more um, quotes from the Democratic side. Yes, I, I think that uh, it's important to take a nuanced view of what the Democrats did and didn't stand for in order to... But, but also, one could say, so what? I mean, you know, in, in the end, one should get to the best rule. But anyway, so here's uh, Senator Bennett talking some more about this uh, theme that Senator Schumer brought up about the question of a veto uh, by the minority over the majority, the question of a supermajority. I want to be very clear that I don't want this place to turn into the House of Representatives. I, don't, I think that would be a huge mistake. And, but... It is not behaving the way that the founders designed it to behave. And the history, you know, admittedly is opaque, but it is very clear to me 
that the modern abuse of the filibuster represents very little in the way of traditional Senate practice or what the framers were considering. So I, I can imagine finding ourselves to a place where we actually have extended debate, where we actually have a public filibuster like we used to have. Everybody remembers the movie version of that, but they actually did that on the floor of the Senate versus the secret filibuster that acts as a, uh, a perpetual veto by the minority on the majority, something that the framers clearly uh, uh, were trying to avoid. Um, and at the same time gives the minority the chance to hold the floor, persuade the American people of their point of view, amend legislation in ways that is unimaginable in the House, and then in the end gives the majority the chance to actually make a decision so we can effectively compete with countries all over the world that aren't held up by the kind of veto we're talking about. There's not a legislative body in the world that I'm aware of except in, in any of the other countries with which we compete that has a filibuster. So I'd say that other piece of this, the idea that we're going to seesaw back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, I think the reality is that's not what happens in other places that don't have a filibuster. And I believe we have the opportunity, if we're actually having a public debate, not sitting in our office or, you know, off fundraising, but instead having a public debate on the floor of this Senate, that the American people can actually begin to hold people here accountable again for their position on health care or guns or whatever it is. We don't ever get the chance to do that here because we never even have a debate in the world's most deliberative body. So that's Senator Bennett. Wow, I love that. Let me tell you about five things that I love about it. Um, and uh, cards on the table, M Michael Bennett was my student. Um, he, um, I graded blind, and he, I, he was the best student in the class. Um, uh, and um, so I've been an admirer of him for many years. Four of the senators, uh, the current senators, are actually my students. Uh, Mike Bennett, um, uh, Cory Booker, Chris Coons, and Josh Hawley. I won't tell you about their grades. I'll just tell you about <laughs> Michael Bennett's, because uh, he was number one. Um, and um, his daughter is actually my student undergrad, um, and I, I, I love that. Um, and here are all the things that he said that were really thoughtful. He said, actually, there should be debate, um, and we're not doing that now. He's in favor of allowing people to you know, amend. So, so the person that he sounds most like, actually, thus far, is Joe Manchin, saying people should be allowed to speak and, and amend. And, and, and Ben is saying, yes, they should, but we're not doing that today. And actually... Um, um, so um, here's why he's also like Joe Manchin. He comes from a purple state. And, and, um, and I said, um, the, the House, actually very few people in the House come from purple districts. A higher percentage of senators come from purple states. That's what I said last week. Bennett is one of them. Yeah, Colorado leans blue, but it used to lean red. And, and, um, and so he's going to be more thoughtful on these issues than a blue guy from a blue state um, Chuck Schumer, or you know, a red guy from a red state, uh, Tom Cotton. Now, Manchin is not from a purple state, but he's you know really a fish out of water because um, he's a blue guy in a deeply red state now. So in that respect, he's got some similarities to to Bennett. And I love Bennett's tone of voice; it's you know very reasonable and thoughtful and moderate. So so oh, he's got some things in common 
with Joe Manchin. Who's Joe Manchin looking up to? Unfortunately, and getting his cue from the previous senator from West Virginia, one of the previous senators, the most famous one, Robert Byrd. Who's Michael Bennett getting his cues from? Maybe Gary Hart, Yale Law School, Yale Law School. Senator from Colorado, Senator from Colorado. What did he actually say? He says, we're spending too much time dialing for dollars and not enough time debating. That sounds like Gary Hart. What did he say? Look at the rest of the world. They're, they're more nimble than we are. Who says stuff like that? Gary Hart has said, said stuff like that forever, you know, as an Atari Democrat. So I wouldn't be shocked if Michael Bennett sort of, you know, channeled Gary Hart in certain ways, the, way, the same way that Manchin was, was channeling Robert Byrd. And I don't know whether Bennett has read my stuff or not. But, oh, he is repeating things that I did said about how the Senate actually really did work early on, which was not through an entrenched filibuster that enabled the minority party to prevent a majority party from even taking a vote Um, and then being held accountable um, for that. He also, I don't know if he heard the podcast episode, Andy, but you used the very word seesaw, you know, that he was actually at least trying to respond to. So... um, Well done, Senator Bennett. And just for the audience, by way of reminder, um, I'm hearing these quotes for the first time because Andy spent many hours going through the debate so you could hear the best clips and hear my um, immediate candid responses, which is just how we did the row, row, row episode. Um, That was about the Supreme Court. This is about the Senate. And in both situations, we're hearing that some people really have done their homework and other people are just giving you sound bites. I think Michael Bennett has done his homework, as he, as he did when he was back when he was my student. So I salute you, Senator. And speaking of uh, a senator that did their homework, I think uh, Senator Merkley uh, gives the most uh, detailed historic account of he's trying to refute the, the notion that, uh, or at least take on the notion that the Senate was historically uh, required this uh, level of, of difficulty in ending debate and so forth. So I have uh, a somewhat longer quote from him. But before you, you do that, let me just, you know, this is just pandering to Andy here. So, you know, you have to have a special spot in your heart, Andy, for Michael Bennett, because he's a Yale person, admittedly Yale Law School, um, but a Yale alum who's also a Yale parent. And, and that would describe not just Michael Bennett, but, but Andrew Lipka and Akil Amar. So, so we especially love those folks. Uh, but, yeah, so uh, we'll be hearing from Amy Klobuchar also. So there, there you go. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and she had the additional advantage of being in Jonathan Edwards College. So here's Senator Merkley uh, discussing the, the history of the filibuster and, the, and how that fits into the, the, the soul of the Senate, as uh, Senator McConnell referred to it. The rules of the Senate were forged in the Confederation Congress experience. Our founders were engaged during the time they were writing our Constitution in participating in the Confederation Congress that required a vote of 9 out of 13, two-thirds plus a bit, in order to pass any law. And it prevented them from being able to pay the pensions of our veterans. And it prevented them from raising money for Shays' Rebellion. Our founders participating in that process said this supermajority has paralyzed our ability to act. And with that in mind, they wrote our Constitution so that legislation would be passed 
by simple majority. That at the end of the debate, when all perspectives were duly considered, the perspective favored by the larger number would be accepted rather than the perspective favored by the smaller number. And so our founders, leaving nothing to chance, warned us in their writings, never adopt a supermajority. They said, and I will quote James Madison, that when the general good might require new laws, the principle of free government would be reversed. It would no longer be the majority that would rule, it would be the power transferred to the minority. And he went on to say the result would be particular emergencies to extort unreasonable indulgences. Hamilton said many similar things. If a pertinacious minority can control the opinion of the majority, the result will be tedious delays and continual negotiation and intrigue and contemptible compromises. He noted the supermajority's real operations to embarrass the administration and destroy the energy of government. And anyone who has seen the energy drained out of this chamber by nothing happening, day after day after day when we have important issues to face, could understand just how right the founders were. So in writing up the guidelines and the vision for the initial Senate, our leaders came up with a Senate code. And that Senate code was here all perspectives. In fact, guaranteeing in rule four of the original rules that every senator will have the right to speak twice to a question. In addition, they put into the rules the previous question, just in case they couldn't get the debate to wrap up so they could get to that all-important vote to determine where the greater number stood. And Thomas Jefferson put into the rule book the manual for the rules in 1801, no one is to speak impertinently or beside the question, superfluously or tediously. Hear the debate, consider all perspectives, and take the option the greater number favor. That Senate code endured in a powerful fashion for a very long time. In 1806, Aaron Burr was rewriting the rules, and he said, you know, we've never needed to use the previous question rule in the book because we hear everyone, we hear those perspectives, we take a vote, and we go forward, so we don't need the previous question. And it was dropped from the rule book. And when I hear folks say the Senate never had a simple majority to close debate, they had the Senate code, and they had a rule, and then they said, we don't need the rule because we have the Senate code. And that code continued to endure, which the full understanding of the members of this chamber was they had no right to prevent the Senate from getting to a final vote. That code was so powerful that in the mid-1800s, when senators started to speak at length in order to make it very difficult to get to a final vote, the press called it piracy. 
you may wonder, where did that term filibuster come from? It terms, that term is a corruption of the term freebooter, the term for piracy. The piracy was senators breaking the Senate code. The House passed the Civil Rights Act on public accommodations, guaranteeing access to all public accommodations for all Americans. The House voted 152 to 99, and it came to the Senate, and the Senate voted 38-26, simple majority. Although there were senators here who desperately hated public accommodation bills because it would end discrimination in the South, they did not filibuster because the Senate code said after all views are heard, you can hold a simple majority vote. The Senate code held, but it didn't hold in 1891. And in 1890, Henry Cabot Lodge, down the hall in the House, introduced what became known as the Lodge Bill, and it said, in order to protect the foundation of our nation, there can be federal supervision upon request to make sure registration is fair, to make sure the voting process is fair, and to make sure the counting process is fair. And the bill came here to the Senate. And a bipartisan group filibustered that bill of Southern Democrats and Western senators known as the Silver Senators. And they were anxious to get on to a bill about silver coinage support the silver mining in the West. And that bill was eventually tabled. 1891, the Senate code was broken on civil rights and continued to be broken through 1965. 1922, the Dyer Anti-Lynching Act. It was filibustered. 1934, the and wagner Anti-Lynching Act. It was filibustered. 1942, the anti-poll tax bill that put a price on being able to access the ballot box, it was filibustered, and on and on. With the exception of a one-week delay in a bill for arming commercial ships in 1917, virtually every filibuster was to deny black Americans the right to vote because in lieu of nullification, there had to be a strategy for certain senators to make sure that black Americans didn't get their civil rights. That is the sorry chapter of that part of our American history. Three generations through 1965 paid the price of denied opportunities. The Senate code on every other issue essentially survived until 1971 within our lifetimes. 1975-71, we started to see the filibuster go to not just one or two filibusters a year, but to 12, a dozen. Imagine that. And 1974 to 32. And that was just so outrageous because each one takes up a week. And so this Senate said, that is unacceptable. So we must reform the rules. And it led to the March 1975 rule reform where they went from two-thirds of those voting to 60 members voting. Well... The result is that law backfired. To quickly look at it, cloture on amendments, each one taking up a week, 
expanded from some six times an entire decade in the 1960s to 143 times in the 2010s. From motion to proceed, which is the ability to prevent debate from ever happening. So the filibuster to promote debate was used to kill debate on the motion to proceed. It was used 10 times in the 1960s, 175 times in the 2010s. And on nominations, it went from once in the 1960s to 545 times in the 2010s. And how did it happen that it expanded in the 2010s? Well, it happened because the Republican majority, the Republican minority, decided that they were going to obstruct as many of President Obama's nominations as possible. And the Democrats did the same thing to President Trump. Each one of these takes up a week, an intervening day, 30 hours of debate, another hour of debate for every other senator who wants to speak who didn't get to, every single one. So when you have over 100 of these a year, it is impossible to have a Senate that works. The Senate has been broken. It's lengthy, but I think he makes a number of important points. Um, he, he really traces the fact that the filibuster was, was not something that was a tradition in the Senate since its beginning, that it was used primarily for frustration of civil rights, and that it has exploded in recent years, and that an attempt to reform the filibuster, to go from two-thirds to 60 votes, uh, was carried along with it, the uh, the fact that you no longer had to stand there and talk, mm-hmm. and as a result, it became easier to use, and then it be- it just it just basically killed the Senate, as he says. So um, many thoughts by Senator Merkley. He's been a leader in filibuster reform. When I started to make the rounds to talk to senators, he was actually the the, the first one who who re- was really in, and his staffers. Um, one of his staffers was a recent Yale graduate. Um, they were actually the first ones to listen. Um, yes, several of the points that he made um, have already been made um, uh, by me or by others in this podcast. So he um, uh, talks about Thomas Jefferson's manual. Uh, he, he missed the biggest punchline. He quotes right. some of it. Here's the key sentence um, from Thomas Jefferson. In addition to all that, the voice of the majority decides. So it's hard to be more clear than that. And that's in the manual. And then again, um, the next sentence is um, for the lex majoris part, this majority rule is the law of all councils, elections, etc., were not otherwise expressly provided. So, so the voice of the majority determines. So, he, I wish he had put that in. Um, decides, excuse me, the voice of the majority. Um, but he makes that point, and, and the point about the founders. Um, he makes the other point that I already said that, that the Articles of Confederation had a supermajority requirement, and especially Hamilton, but he adds also Madison, thought that was a big mistake. They expressly repudiated that, and, and, and that's to the point. It's what Tom Cotton you know, and Joe Manchin and Mitch McConnell were talking about. They were quoting the Federal 62 utterly out of context because on none of those, um, not, uh, 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 Madison wasn't talking about majority rule. He was talking about other features. To repeat, I'm definitely with Senator Bennett. I don't want the Senate to be like the House. And it won't because it's smaller and more thoughtful and more deliberative and people talk to each other and there is a higher percentage of purple states than there are a percentage of of purple congressional districts. Um, There are very few swing congressional House districts, many more swing 
um, uh, uh, states and, and senators are elected statewide. So good on um, uh, the founders' general repudiation of supermajority rule. Good on early Senate practice and the manual of parliamentary procedure. Good on early um, Senate practice before the Civil War, which did not involve um, um, successful uh, filibusters. And those are all Akhil Amar points, and I'm glad he made them. Then he actually talks about how there's this sorry history of the filibuster in the late um, 19th and, and much of the 20th century, and it's all about having lost the nullification debate and the secession debate and the Civil War and the Reconstruction Amendments. This is the, the new tactic of choice by Southern obstructionists, um, early civil rights legislation, and, and, and mid-20th century attempted civil rights legislation. That's what John Witt talked about um, when he was on our podcast. So all of that um, was good. And then Merkley made the point that this, the filibuster today is much, much more extreme and pervasive um, and, and costly than ever before. He gives you lots of the facts and figures. He, he, um, here's what I said just in a sentence, but he really fleshed out the argument very nicely. Um, I said, in the late 20th and early 21st centuries, routine filibustering practices have skyrocketed. Okay, so that's what he's saying. It used to be pretty, it used to be non-existent, then very, very rare, mainly only for civil rights and voting rights legislation. Now it's routine and it's dysfunctional because we have a functional rule of decision that's supermajoritarian and full circle. That's exactly what the framers repudiated when they moved from the Articles of Confederation to the Constitution. They substituted for supermajority in a unicameral assembly a different model of House president, different terms, two years for the House, four years for the Senate, uh, four years for the presidency, six years for the Senate, different modes of selection, different mechanisms of apportionment, proportionality for the House, equal Senate, equal states for the Senate, a combination for the Electoral College. That's what they substituted, an articulated system of, of basically tricameralism, if you will, House, Senate, presidency, but the House and Senate within that tricameral system operated by majority rule whereas the old Confederation Congress was unicameral and supermajoritarian and dysfunctional. So that was all good, uh, very impressive in general for, for Senator Merkley. I wish he hadn't been a Bernie Sanders person, so we don't agree on everything. You know, uh, politically, um, um, he was one of the very, very few Democratic senators in 2016 who was um, uh, for, for Sanders. Um, so... Um, I'm saying, look, I agree with Senator Manchin on some things and not on others. Senator McConnell on some things, but not on others. Um, Senator Merkley on this emphatically, but not on everything. I just want to give uh, Amy Klobuchar, uh, Senator Klobuchar, the opportunity to, to weigh in briefly. Okay, so, uh, so Senator Klobuchar is addressing the uh, question about whether or not uh, the, uh, the Senate has ever voted to... Uh, you know, and debate within the rules. Um, and, uh, and here we go on that. There are 160 exceptions, 160 exceptions to the filibuster rule. Things have been changed to benefit my colleagues from the other side of the aisle. Somehow it only takes 51 votes to put in place the Trump tax cuts or the Bush tax cuts. Somehow it only took 51 votes to put Amy Coney Barrett on the Supreme Court of the United States, a change by them, made by them. Somehow, it only takes 51 votes to try to overturn a regulation or try to mess around with the Affordable Care Act. But then, 
when it comes to something like voting rights, suddenly everyone on the other side of the aisle is hugging that filibuster tight, knowing that so many times in history, including most recently with the debt ceiling, changes have been made to allow a vote with less than 60 votes. The National Gas Policy Act, in 1977, in 1995, the Endangered Species Act, in 1996, a change to the reconciliation process. 160 times. And as Representative Clyburn has pointed out so well, there have been times in our history when that most sacrosanct of rights has been extended or defended the right to vote on a bipartisan basis, like the 15th Amendment. But we note that, as he said, that was a single party vote that gave black people the right to vote. And that fact does not make the 15th Amendment any less legitimate. And now one more rhetorical flourish. The people of this country will not tolerate silencing, as the minority leader has said, silencing their voices truly. I think by voting this down, by not allowing us to even debate this to get to the conclusion of a vote. That is silencing the people of America, all in the name of an archaic Senate rule that isn't even in the Constitution. That's just wrong. I yield the floor. Okay, we'll take the floor back. So I thought that that uh, pretty effectively uh, addressed the question of... um, of unity, uh, the, of the need for having someone from the other side necessarily in every piece of legislation using the 15th Amendment as, a, as an excellent example, and that, that in the end the Senate needs to get its work done. Um, some nice points, and not just the 15th Amendment, but the 14th Amendment passed basically um, with only one or two exceptions, the 14th Amendment in Congress um, uh, uh, passed with every single uh, Republican voting yes, and basically almost and every single Democrat voting no. So it was a also a, a, a partisan measure. I'd prefer if we could get some bipartisan um, buy-in on that. And and here's one way uh, to 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 do it, because um, Senator Klobuchar's um, views about this may have evolved over the years. Senator Schumer's they were. There were times when they may have been opposed to certain versions of the nuclear option when the Republicans um, were in charge, um, and that has led to charges of, of um, opportunism on their part. I think we'll post a, a, a political cartoon um, by, uh, from Fox News criticizing Senator Klobuchar, and we're going to do that because we need to be fair and balanced. I'm a huge fan of Amy Klobuchar. I supported her for the presidency the last time. Her her daughter is actually my head TA, Abigail Bessler, uh, this semester, um, and what and she's just a wonderful student. I had her as an undergrad, and now she's um, uh, uh, a law student working with me. Um, so, um, uh, but to the the best argue, the best way to rebut this claim that we're just being partisan here is to pre-commit yourself, if you're a Democrat, to supporting um, future filibuster reform, even when you're in the minority party and the Republicans want to, if they ever want to go nuclear and do the nuclear option, saying, I'm going to vote for this because actually um, um, long-term, 
we just need to move away from supermajority rule towards simple majority rule in the Senate. And, um, and if that means that I'm the f- first one that has to make uh, you know, a self-denying step and, and cross the political aisle, I'm willing to do that. The first senator who does that is going to take huge hits from his or her party and, and base. Um, and Amy Klobuchar surely would if she said um, that. But she'd also be showing herself to be truly presidential timber um, because what we actually need in America um, are Republicans who can work with Democrats, um, um, maybe Liz Cheney um, or um, Mitt Romney on um, the January 6th commission or impeachment, um, the uh, the second Trump impeachment, um, and um, uh, Democrats who can work with Republicans um, like um, Amy Klobuchar, you know, could be if if she were willing to say something like that. You know, Akil, when I was going through the Senate debate uh, on the filibuster, you have to realize this was attached to a bill. That's why the fil- yeah they were going they were filibustering a bill and they're filibustering the these uh, voting rights bills. And the debate on the voting right, right voting rights bill itself was notable. First of all, for the fact that there was a debate. And the senators actually commented on that fact. Um, but also, the nature of the debate itself uh, was, was profound. Um, and I particularly noted an exchange uh, between Senators Scott and Booker, two African-American senators. And I, you know, we don't have time in this episode, but I definitely want to revisit this um, very soon because I think it was, uh, there's a lot of lessons to be learned in listening to this debate. Plus, it's just you know good to hear senators, talented senators, um, show what they've got. So uh, let's let's come back come back to that with some clips in a future episode. And I'll talk since I bragged about Michael Bennett, who's my student. I can brag about Cory uh, Booker, who's another one of my students. And um, remember that Amy Klobuchar said there we've modified the supermajoritarian requirement for all sorts of things. She identified 160 carve outs. Um, and uh, remember that uh, Gary, so why shouldn't we do it for this? You know, if we can do it for um, tax cuts and, and Supreme Court um, nominations, why not for voting rights? Remember Gary Hart said, well, you know, he's with me kind of across the board, but of course um, we should make it easy to, um, uh, for Congress to, to protect um, voting rights, which he labeled the heart of a democracy, um, with an E, Gary, Gary Hart. And of course we heard Senator McConnell defend, you know, an entrenched filibuster as the, the soul of the Senate. Um, and these things are connected. So I, I think really our episode um, uh, today and our companion episode, where we're going to have Gary um, back on with us next week, and we'll return at some point to the, the voting rights aspects with the Booker um, uh, Scott debate. But I think actually the title of, of this series should be, you know, Heart and Soul. Mm-hmm. The, the heart of democracy and the soul of the Senate. Well put. Okay, well, yeah, of course, as we know, uh, the filibuster remains with us. Um, but who knows for how long. It's hard to, it's hard to imagine that uh, one party or another won't have a, a, a bare majority without outliers like Senators Sinema and Manchin, um, where they don't have 60 votes, but they do have... 50 that are willing to say goodbye to the filibuster, and that's going to happen sooner rather than later, I think. And, and, and wouldn't it be amazing if, let's say, um, 
uh, one party only has 51 and can't fill an inside straight and get all 51, but let's say 47 of the uh, people in the majority party vote to do this, and four members of the other party cross the aisle and saying, you know, on this issue, we're actually going to vote against you on the merits, but we actually think that there should be filibuster reform um, going forward, um, and we think it should be um, although it would be lawful and legitimate if it were um, uh, just one party doing it, we think it would be better if it's bipartisan and we will join you in this. That's, remember what McConnell talked about early on, you know, this is just one party um, doing this, and, and Amy Klobuchar says that's not necessarily always wrong. Look at the 15th Amendment, I added the 14th. But wouldn't it be amazing? And the, per- the people who do that, who cross the aisle, um, they will take a hit, from their party base, but maybe they will be um, uh, valorized by history, you know, as profiles encourage. It's possible even that would improve their presidential prospects because Americans want their presidents actually ideally to be within between the 40-yard lines, to be um, people who can uh, uh, appeal to, uh, to both parties. It's very hard to be president of the United States because you have to be leader of us all and leader of your party. That's, a vi- that's a really a tightrope, uh, not to mention leader of the free world, um, speaking of Ukraine, um, as I just did. But, but if, if someone like Amy Klobuchar did that, it would be a gutsy move saying, I commit myself to support filibuster reform, even if it's proposed by um, a Republican majority leader in the future. That would be very interesting. You know, if they did do that, um, it'd be sort of a good government bill, right? Um, and perhaps that's the time to, if that if you have that momentum, maybe that's the time to, to actually fix the Presidential Succession Act with its the, uh, 18 electoral, uh, types and, of imbecility or however many we right. found. And, and the Electoral Count Act and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, I think the Electoral Count Act is actually going to be on the table. Uh, it's going to be uh, to be revised, um, and uh, perhaps that's something we should discuss. We haven't really gotten into it. We'll talk a little bit about the Greeley Press, but that's for another time. Anyway. So just some teasing our audience, but soon it's back to Gary Hart. Uh, And uh, maybe later on, um, uh, among others, Amul Thapar, um, who is a federal judge um, very close to Senator McConnell, in fact, as you will hear, um, and who has uh, been uh, mentioned as a prominent prospect for the Supreme Court in a Republican administration. Okay, until then. 